Trust the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program, LawPay. The practice of law changed significantly in the past decade, and perhaps the biggest disruption arrived in March 2020, when the coronavirus pandemic forced most lawyers to leave their offices and work remotely. There's been challenges and fears for the profession, as well as a necessity to quickly change the way something has always been done. That's hard for lawyers. As part of a special series, the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered is asking lawyers about how they've done it and what they think will come next. I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward, and my guest today is Hari Osofsky, the Dean of Penn State Law, who in August will start a new job as a Dean of Northwestern Pritzker School of Law. Dean, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. As a law school dean, there were many surprises over the past year, but what do you think, what were some things that surprised you the most during the pandemic? So I think as we think about the last year and, and the things that we had to work through, it's important to, to recognize that there were an intersectional set of crises. Um, so the pandemic was occurring at the same time as a racial justice reckoning and a very contentious um, presidential election. And so one of the things that, I don't know if it was a surprise per se, but one of the things that, that really was meaningful and moving to me was the way in which people worked together and collaborated um, in, in, and supported each other across the board. Um, so, you know, I've never seen the law deans collaborate as much as they have during this crisis. Um, people in our community um, at Penn State Law really came together um, to support one another. And um, it really reinforced my sense, as I'm sure we'll talk about more, of the importance in crisis of inclusive leadership. That it's that that to the extent that you can involve people and hear them and translate that into the steps that you take, I think it really helps us all get through these crises together. I'm curious. I want to touch on what you said about collaboration within legal academia and the university, was that comforting? Because during the time, there's also in the past year, there's been times when we see all these stories about people really not working together well. And there were times people were just so angry with each other and so frightened. And just everything of the past year was so stressful. Was it, was it comforting to see your colleagues and peers helping each other and working together well? It was wonderful to see the ways in which people collaborated. And I think um, at least, you know, what, what I experienced was that one of, one of the things I learned early on in my deanship is the importance of, of people feeling heard, right? If people don't feel heard, the smallest of issues can become really big issues. And if people do feel heard, um, you can work through really hard things together. And so... There were all, all sorts of moments throughout this crisis in which people were sharing with me, you know, their perspectives and their opinions on things, and they weren't always the same. But I think if you create an environment in which you're listening to those multiple perspectives and you're working together, you can work through things. So I think it's, you know, it, you don't always start at a point of agreement and, and people may still have different perspectives. But to the extent that you can find constructive ways to talk through and work through things, I think it's critically important um, in facing these challenges. The second thing I'd say is that 
Um, I think it's important to recognize that people were across the board having a pretty hard time and that the challenges of this year were not distributed equally, that some people were were really experiencing a lot of trauma um, and, um, and, and, or, and, and exhaustion, and that it was it's important to sort of recognize that and I think to create a supportive environment um, in, in which you're responsive to that and provide all the resources that you can. What did you learn about working so that people do feel heard? I feel like sometimes I'm not at naming any certain law school, but there are some law schools where sometimes faculty and students and, and staff, they don't, they, you do get complaints about feeling like they're not being heard or their point of view is not important. What did you learn about what one can do as a dean to make sure that everyone in the community does feel heard in a respectful way? So I think the key is to recognize that it's very important as a dean, of course, to work effectively with shared governance structures, but that those structures on their own may not create enough opportunity for input. So I'll give you a couple of concrete examples from um, the past year of, of ways in which we've sort of had input that translated into action. So one of the decisions we had to make at Penn State Law, as every law school did um, in, in the spring of last year, was uh, whether we were going to change the way we graded. Um, as you know, almost every law school in the country ultimately moved to a mandatory credit fail. Um, we were we were early in that process, and so we we didn't have you know we had benchmarking, but but it was unclear what what direction it, it was going at that time. Um, and we had a process by which I had an information and listening session with our students, um, our student bar association leader, who were key leaders throughout this pandemic. Then went and did surveying of our students. We had a student representative on our curriculum committee when we considered the matter before it went to the faculty. And then we had some student leaders present to the faculty at the faculty meeting. The student input um, really meant a lot to our faculty and, and was outcome determinative in the approach that we took, which was deciding to do mandatory credit fail. Um, so I think it's that's an example of sort of an inclusive process, um, even in crisis, which by which people's voices were heard. And so they, they you know, that it didn't mean that every single person th felt the same way about the decision, but I think that process really mattered. Um, similarly, in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder, um, we had a really raw listening session at our law school, as, as we're occurring in law schools around the country, in, in which people were sharing ways in which we were falling short and in, and in which we had work to do. And that listening provided a basis for me and some other law school leaders to sit down with the leadership of our Black, student, um, Black Law Students Association, with our um, Student Bar Association, and together develop concrete action steps. We then, um, by that Friday, had a concrete action steps to share with the broader community for feedback. And, and the Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and I also made a leadership gift um, to move forward one of the action steps that was most important to the students, a George Floyd Memorial Scholarship. So I think it's that approach where you you know, there are a lot of challenging situations that we had to work through as a community um, this year. Um, and I think the key thing is that we have to listen to, to what people will find supportive and take approaches that are grounded in that listening. So to sum things up, when students ask the law school to do things, when that was feasible, the law school would do them. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's accurate. Um, I'll give you a great example of that um, around our commencement planning. 
So we got some feedback from the students that the the original plan that we had for commencement, sort of following the the university approach, um, they they really weren't happy with. And so, you know, I had them write a, a letter to me about what was important to them. And we looked at our logistical ability to do that in line with public health guidelines um, and went to the university and worked with the university and were able to accommodate changes to the plan um, that made students feel really positively about their commencement. So I think it's about, you know, starting from a point of we can't always say yes. We can't always do things the way people are asking us to do them. But a lot of times we can or we can get closer. And by really providing an opportunity for people to, to share what it is that's important to them and then our I think genuinely trying to be responsive to that, it goes a long way. Got it. I'm curious, I think in March of 2020, uh, when the nation first started going on lockdown, some people thought, well, this is only going to last for a month or so. Did you envision that it would carry on for a year? Uh, not at all. I mean, I, we were like the rest of the country. You know, we thought we were pivoting for a few weeks. One of the things that I think Penn State as a university did really well throughout the pandemic, um, you know, our, our provost and president started organizing um, a university response back in February. Um, and we actually had our and, and encouraged us to create unit response teams. So we actually had started organizing our law school response team late February 2020. And so um, we're really sort of ready to go with that team when we had to make the pivot during our spring break to remote education. Um, and having that team in place with kind of key constituencies represented throughout sort of the early stages of the crisis, um, the first few months it was, you know, meeting very regularly made a huge difference. Do you think there will be permanent changes to come out of the pandemic for legal education? I hope so. So what I would say is I'm a huge believer in the importance of learning leadership and learning institutions. And so I think the key question that we should be asking ourselves in the coming year in legal education and in the profession is what can we learn from the experiences that we've had in the past year? I think we also have to understand that the pivots that took place during this pandemic are in the broader context of immense change happening in the legal profession and in our society. So I became a dean four years ago because I think thought we were at a moment of profound change in which technology and globalization and the need for cross-cutting knowledge and the need for progress and diversity, equity, inclusion, these things were changing the practice of law and they were also raising big legal issues. And so I think that what we've seen is that the pandemic has only accelerated that tra transition, but it's also exacerbated inequality in a variety of ways. And so I think that, that it's going to be incredibly important for institutions in legal education and more broadly to really think about what it is we can learn from these pivots in terms of how we want to do things moving forward. Do you have any concerns that in some instances we won't learn and we'll just go back to how things have been? And, and if so, what could people do to prevent that from happening? I definitely think there's always a danger um, that we won't learn in the ways that we need to and innovate in the ways that we need to. I think one of the, the takeaways from this past year, though, is that leadership really matters and that we as leaders can 
um, work collaboratively with people to ensure that the learning that that needs to take place does. Um, and I think one of the things that that we need to be doing within our law school communities, um, among law school deans, um, is continuing the process that we've had this year of collaborating to think about what we can learn. So I've been organizing for the past three years now um, a monthly meeting of law deans to think about technology and innovation. And over the course of this year, we've really turned to some intensive work on you know, both information sharing. So what are the best things that we figured out in this that we could learn from that we can share with each other? But also what are new ways that we can collaborate in sharing some of the, the things that we're doing um, with one another um, to help each other? Um, and so I, you know, I think the key is that the, the reason collaboration is such an important piece of this, collaboration across our universities with our colleagues, collaboration within our law schools, collaboration with other law schools, collaboration with other legal organizations, is because what we don't want to do is reinvent wheels separately. I think it's crucially important that we learn from one another um, and really figure out what are the things that can help us move forward more effectively. All right. Dean, let's take a quick break. And when we come back... Uh, let's talk about your upcoming transition to Northwestern Law. We'll be right back. Imagine if 62% of your clients paid on the same day they were billed. That's what it's like to be with LawPay. LawPay makes it easy to securely accept credit, debit, and e-check payments from anywhere. For June only, LawPay is offering no monthly fee for the rest of the year, plus the first three months of 2022 as your ABA member benefit. Visit lawpay.com ABA to get started. And we're back. I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward, and on today's episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, I'm speaking with Hari Osofsky, the Dean of Penn State Law, who in August will be starting her new position as Dean of Northwestern Law. So, Dean, I'm curious, what's it like, I mean, you've gotten through this year uh, with Penn State, and everything is opening back up, and it's like, well, are things going to be the same, are they going to be different, and you're moving to a different law school. What's that like? So it's obviously a, a pretty unusual time to be in transition. Um, I want to start by saying, I mean, it's just been such an honor and pleasure to be dean of Penn State the last four years. Um, and, um, you know, I'm very hard to leave this community as excited as I am about becoming the dean at Northwestern Pritzker School of Law. Um, one of the things that that I think makes, makes the transition unusual has been um, how much it, it's been on Zoom, you know, and so I think you know, recognizing that it's it's really important at a time in which um, we're not as physically together as we would normally be to make extra effort to build connection at, at both the Penn State and at, and at Northwestern. You know, I think one of the things I've learned during this pandemic is the importance of the informal interactions that we have with people, the, the hallway conversations. And so we lose that during the pandemic and, and when we're on Zoom. And so I think it's it's really a matter of of, of, of making that extra effort to make sure that 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 you're listening and getting to know people in, a, in, in the new institution at the same time being really responsive here at Penn State. Could you see any pieces of remote learning sticking with us? Like, say, in January of 2022, Chicago has a huge snow dump. And instead of canceling classes, they could just be remote for a couple of days. 
That's a great question. And I think this, this issue of, of how we incorporate remote learning moving forward is an important one. There are already law schools that have hybrid JD programs um, and um, an active discussion right now around the distance learning requirements of the ABA. Um, so part of what determines um, the level of flexibility that law schools will have moving forward is um, you know, obviously, law schools have to comply with accreditation requirements, and so, um, and so, I think that there's a, a really important set of conversations going on right now about, you know, what's possible under the current rules, and what would be possible under under different rules. And so, I I do think you're right that there are a lot more people now who have experience in remote teaching that gives us a flexibility to think about um, what we want our policies to be about when and how we allow for remote teaching and remote learning. Because you see some of the top law schools keeping in place a hybrid JD program. I know a lot of law schools are seeking accommodations for them with legal ed, and maybe this would be another way for law school to get more attendance. There's a whole interesting set of questions about um, both for JD programs and for non-JD programs about what we can learn from this. Um, I think there's going to be a demand moving forward um, for what I sometimes refer to as hyper-flexibility. Um, I think that you know what people have experienced during this pandemic isn't simply remote learning, but a, a moving back and forth between modalities. And so I think one interesting set of questions will be, you know, not only to what extent do law schools um, decide to create more hybrid educational opportunities, um, but just also, you know, are, are there ways in which they will um, create more flexible learning opportunities? And I think, you know, flexible learning isn't just about degree programs. It's also about lifetime learning and how we as law schools support people after they graduate and in continuing learning um, needs. And so I think we have an exciting opportunity to really think about um, the, different, the different needs that people have to learn something about law from, from the JD to non-JD programs to um, shorter form things that, that aren't degrees at all as we move forward. Speaking for law school needs generally, what do you think are going to be the biggest challenges for the 2021-2022 school year? So I think that the biggest challenges at, at sort of universities around the country um, are, are going to be multifold. The first is around the pandemic itself. We're obviously in a transitional period. And one of the things I've been seeing this summer is that even as things open up and as people become vaccinated, people really vary in their comfort level about being together. And I also think that um, there, there are people who um, are, are going to want some of, you know, they've learned they can do things remotely that they didn't know they could before. And so I think there are going to be all sorts of questions about sort of what, what staffing looks like, et cetera. So I, I think that this 2021-22 academic year is, is going to have a lot of focus, certainly at the beginning, of return to campus and what that looks and feels like and, and recognizing that as a transitional process. I think that we also are going to need to continue to 
to focus on some of the the crucial issues that are you know um, facing legal education in our nation. Um, these issues of uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and social and racial justice are ones that are longstanding in the profession and in our and, and in our law schools, and and ones that we're going to need to continue to do important work on. And I also think that these transitions in in the profession and what it means to prepare our students to lead for a changing legal profession um, are, are going to be really important questions for us to grapple with as we see the profession starting to return to work in various ways this this year as well. Do you have any sense on what the job market will be for new lawyers for the next few years? I feel like for the uh, 2020 graduates overall, the news was somewhat surprisingly positive. Not all schools saw upticks, but some did, or they stayed the same. And it certainly wasn't what people feared initially. I agree with you that I think there, there were concerns at the beginning that it might look like our prior recession. Um, obviously, the things that are driving the economic challenges um, during the pandemic are, are simply different um, from, from that recession, which involved the financial industry so heavily. I think the question will be, though, um, again, you know, what, I mean, you know, we've already seen a growth in um, JD Advantage jobs over the, the last several years, jobs that um, don't require um, someone to have uh, taken the bar, gone to law school, but where a JD is, is helpful in doing that work. And so I think there will be questions about um, both what those jobs continue to look like and also what the workplace looks like. What I mean, again, what does it mean to prepare our students to lead? How do we help prepare them to have the problem solving skills that we're hearing that are needed? And as things like artificial intelligence get used more by law firms to, to do legal research, to do contract analysis, um, how will that change the role of, of lawyers in those law firms and how do we prepare our students for those changes? Now, I believe, and the percentage was so different that it's hard to make any kind of judgment, but I believe the JD Advantage jobs were actually down slightly for the class of 2020 compared to 2019. Can we make anything of that? I think it's important to look at long-term trend lines around these. I mean, it's been such an unusual couple of years that um, I think it's hard to make kind of long-term market assessments based on what's going on during crisis. But I do think it's something we want to look closely at. Um, and as I said, I think it's when we think about what it means to prepare our students for a changing marketplace, it's not just a recognition of some of these, these JD Advantage jobs, but also um, how is legal practice going to change as a consequence of the pivots that legal practice had to make? Um, and um, what does it mean to prepare our students for that, even for interviewing, right? So I could see law firms being more likely to do Zoom interviewing than they were before. So how do we make sure we prepare our students for a Zoom interview to be effective in that setting, which is a little different than an in-person one? Oh, that's interesting. You think some of the law firms will keep up with the Zoom interviews for the first round for their associates? Well, it'll be interesting to see what law firms do, yeah. um, but but I certainly could see it a changing face to OCI over time because it's a you know it's a big investment for firms, um, and you know one of the things that we certainly saw was that the ability to you know, because it's lower cost for a firm to come interview over Zoom, that there might be firms who who wouldn't want to expend to go to, to a law school to interview, but would but would still be interested in doing a resume collect and then Zoom interviewing their students. So 
I do think there will be exciting opportunities there to, again, sort of learn from these pivots and maybe create more opportunities and connections. Well, I apologize for not knowing this, but when is OCI traditionally now? I'm thinking that it was usually in October, but perhaps that's changed in the past few years. So traditionally, um, OCI tends to be towards the end of the summer at a lot of law schools. Um, mm-hmm. You know, ours was uh, ours, ours certainly was at Penn State Law. Uh, some, I think, go into the fall. The, the issue is, just like with judicial clerkships, um, there has to be some level of uniformity because, you know, law schools don't want to be want to be on a similar schedule with law firms as they do callbacks, et cetera. You know, obviously there was a pivot during this past academic year because of the um, most of the 1Ls not having grades from spring 2020 to doing an OCI in January. Um, but but I think everybody anticipates reverting back to a more usual schedule of a late summer OCI moving forward. So for this summer, is your sense that many, if not most, law schools will have in-person OCI again, or does it just depend? Or it hasn't been decided yet, maybe? Yeah, I, I certainly know, know better as a law school needed to, to speak for other law schools. I, I think um, right now, every university in the country that I'm aware of is having return to, to campus discussions. And obviously, universities have to do that in line with state law and in line with local law. And so we're still seeing some variation, I think, in, in what universities are doing and the timing of that as, as we all transition back. So I think we're going to generally see a transition back in law schools, but sort of exactly how that's going to look at each law school and when those law schools and universities are going to be ready for in-person um, f- more fully um, is going to vary from school to school. But I, w- I would anticipate that most law schools are going to be in-person in some form in the fall. Um, the ABA has continued to maintain waivers for law schools uh, for the fall. You know, we were able to apply for those waivers, which I think are important because we are still in the middle of a public health crisis. My great hope is that um you know, everything is is on track for, for all the reopening going on. Um, but I think if there's anything we've learned from the last year plus, it's the, it's the need to be ready to be responsive to changing public health situations and pivot as we need to pivot as institutions. So, um, you know, and so I, I really appreciated that the ABA gave flexibility, even though my great hope and expectation is that law schools are going to be much more back to normal this fall. So you anticipate the Penn State law will have classes in person in the fall? I do anticipate that. I anticipate that at Northwestern as well. I see. So as more people are getting vaccinated and cities are opening back up, I know in Chicago, I don't know if you spent much time here recently, but people are, we are enjoying our summer here (laughs) in the city. Are there some things in the past month that you've been able to do that you weren't able to do for the past year that you just really enjoyed? A couple of the things that have been, yeah, really wonderful um, has just been to be able to see people um, in person um, in in ways that just haven't been possible. Um, you know, we've been hybrid. We've had some in person, but but as people become more fully vaccinated and restrictions begin to loosen, the ability to be more fully in person with people, whether it's, you know, just being able to socially have people go out to dinner together or, you know, I, I took a, a, a trip to Chicago finally to um, where I was just able to, 
you know, meet the the team I'll be working with in the law school, meet the provost in person. You know, so I think um, people are just getting to connect in person in ways that haven't been possible, which has been, I think, really wonderful to see. I think the other thing that's been so important to people has been the ability for families to reunite. Um, I, I think it's been very, very hard on people to to have that level of separation from close family and friends. And, and so it's been great to be able to see those reunions happening. On the other hand, are there some things from life pre-pandemic that you don't miss and you don't, maybe you're not going to do them going forward? I think one of the things that I and a lot of other people um, experienced during the pandemic was, um, on the one hand, as a dean, the, the pace was was pretty fast. I mean, you know, it was hard for deans and any administrators to, to really be able to take, like, meaningful vacation last summer, for example, et cetera. But um, on the other hand, I think there's a way in which um, some aspects of the, the hectic way in which we structure our lives change during the pandemic. So the ability to say, I can do this meeting on Zoom, so I don't have the, the travel um, to do that, um, you know, and recognizing where travel was is hard, um, I, I think could have some value. So I'll give you an example. Um, we did so- Southern California alumni um, Zoom events for, for Penn State Law. Um, and if you've lived in the LA area, you'll know that traffic there <laughs> and commutes are really intense. And so I have, the ability- it's gotten much worse, yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so the ability for people to be able to like just Zoom for an hour and not have to drive to be with one another has some value. So. Do I think it's important for people to get together in person? Absolutely. And and as I said, I think everybody is um, appreciating the ability to reconnect um, and, and realizing how much is lost and not having those informal social interactions. But I do think there are ways in which we thought we needed to be in person for things before the pandemic that maybe we don't always need to be and ways in which we can decrease some of the expenses and time burdens on people by allowing some things to be remote moving forward. Got it. Dean, that's everything I wanted to ask you. I want to thank you so much for joining us and good luck to you. Not that you need it, but good luck on everything for you um, with all these changes that are coming. Thank you so much. It's such an honor and pleasure to be able to talk with you about these important issues. And listeners, thank you for joining us. If you like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time for another episode of the ABA Journals Asked and Answered.